Welcome to MPsych, a podcast created by Vituity, a physician-owned and led partnership where we discuss critical topics within the emerging field of emergency psychiatry. And today I'm talking with Seth Thomas, an emergency medicine physician, and we're going to be talking about some of the issues that are related to both uh, mental health and patients while they're in the ED. How do we get them out of the ED? How do we get them to the care they need? Do they have to wait that long? We're going to be talking about emergency psychiatric intervention while in the ED, smart clearance, and other things. Seth, thanks for coming on the show. Do you mind introducing yourself? Hey, no problem, Neil. And thanks so much for having me. I'm really honored to be here. So as uh, Neil said, I'm uh, Dr. Seth Thomas. I'm I'm an emergency physician with uh, Vituity. And um, I live in the Northern California uh, area just outside of Sacramento. And uh, for Vituity, I'm I'm also a director of quality and performance. So my main my main focus is on helping emergency departments with, you know, operational challenges, efficiency, throughput, and things like that. I've got a very special place in my heart, though, for uh, behavioral health and trying to solve uh, the behavioral health crises in our emergency departments. It's always nice to get some of the motivation behind some of the work, both clinically and academic, that our providers and guests have done. What is a type of patient case or example that really motivated you to bring change in this area? Well, I think there have been several, Neil, um, over the years, and I think it didn't really hit me square in the in the between the eyes until I moved from uh, from Contra Costa County. For, for those of you that are familiar with California, uh, Contra Costa County is um, immediately in, it's in the Bay Area, adjacent to the Bay. And uh, when I was working over there, you know, there there really were very progressive processes I think in place to help our patients that were in crisis in the EDs, and I didn't experience really any significantly bad outcomes until I moved to sort of the Sacramento area where I I realized that um, boarding was a significant issue. And unfortunately, um, we had several cases and and, and one that stands out in my mind where a patient stayed in our emergency department for a little over five days. And, uh, you know, unfortunately was very agitated and required sedation and, and restraints while she was on her involuntary hold waiting to get into an inpatient psychiatric facility. And she started to become unstable. And I came on shift, um, you know, that day five and the nursing approached me and they say, hey, you know, doc, this, this patient's you know, saying she's short of breath and you know, stuff like that. And do you want to look into this? And I said, yeah, sure. You know, maybe maybe she's got a little asthma. I saw some asthma history in her background and maybe we should just give her a treatment, things like that. And things didn't get better. She started complaining some chest pain. And then I finally realized, you know, she's a little bit hypoxic and tachycardic and everything. And and, and come to find out, as I sort of went down that diagnostic pathway, I realized that she um, had, had developed and thrown a PE. So she had a saddle embolus um, and, and, you know, certainly didn't require, you know, TPA at that time, but had to be admitted to the hospital. And I think that really affected me deep down inside, you know, and uh, I don't know if she came in with a DVT and then ended up throwing a PE there or if she developed it, uh, you know, lying in our gurney in the back hall, our hall of shame for, for days on end without getting up and, you know, uh, doing the normal things that, that people do. And so that really upset me. And I think it, from that moment on, I said, we have to change this. We've got to do something. I've got to get involved. Um, we have to do better. And uh, so that's one of the things that motivated me. But there, but there are others, unfortunately. Yeah, right. I mean, you said several things there. Um, waiting, waiting for care no psychiatric treatment started. One of the nice things about being, you know, working in a inpatient psych facility is we don't require the prophylaxis against clotting because our patients are typically moving around. 
what is this solution that it's called EPI? What does it stand for? And give us a big picture outline. Yeah, you know, big picture, Neil, is this is about empowering, motivating emergency clinicians to get involved with their patients. And, uh, and, and really, EPI, EPI stands for Emergency, emergency Psychiatric Intervention. It's something we developed at Vituity. What, what EPI is, it's a, it's a collection of best practices, uh, plain and simple, things that we know work, uh, that if you apply them in the right clinical scenario, you can actually help your patients, right? So it's, it's, it's about um, getting involved, getting educated, feeling empowered to start treatment, uh, to treat patients differently, uh, to help uh, expedite their care in a way where, you know, if you think that they're really, truly low risk, trying to set up uh, those downstream pathways and processes to get them to get them to their, you know, the most appropriate level of care without over-processing. Because I think what we end up doing in our emergency department is, is often we just follow the po- protocol, follow the pathway without really giving a lot of thought to it, um, in particular with behavioral health patients, because we've, we've never been taught how to, how to do that in residency. You know, our um, especially mine, I can speak in, on my behalf. I had I got great training in residency, uh, but I was never taught how to really appropriately approach, uh, assess, risk stratify, and start treatment of a behavioral health patient in crisis. Uh, and so, what we're trying to do is is fill that gap. One of the things that that uh, has happened in our emergency department care, as part of the system, not not any one person or group's fault, but is that it's it's become one of the only set of diagnoses uh, by which we say, you know, put them on a bed and make them wait. And whereas all other treatments, you know, shortness of breath, chest pain, all of that treatment would be started, of course, in the ED. We don't wait for a chest pain bed. Um, and so, um, you know, treatment is started, diagnosis is started, and and then uh, they move forward. And I think you're kind of saying, why let's kill the waiting and let's uh, let's start treatment at the right level. See if some of them may not even need the inpatient bed after that treatment is started. Am, am I far off on that? No, you're you're exactly right. And you know, we as the as the ED clinicians know what to do to at least start the treatment. We may not be able to solve that. We may not be able to completely stabilize that. But we're not going to make them wait and not do anything. And uh, you know, for whatever reason. I don't know why, but but with the psychiatric patients, um, that's one one area or one type of patient in in our EDs that really we don't give a warm handoff. You know, these patients come in and say, "I'm I'm experiencing this crisis. I feel horrible," and we're like, "Well, you know, you're gonna have to wait. There's not much we can do." You know, whereas with everybody else, there are things we start doing. And I'm not a cardiologist. I don't want to be a cardiologist. I can't take anybody to the cath lab, but I can tell you I know how to start treating a heart attack or chest pain or ACS. I know how to start treating that PE or that asthma exacerbation, all that, and until we can war- give a warm handoff to the next you know, uh, specialist. And, and for whatever reason, psychiatry and psychiatric patients are the ones that, that really don't get that warm handoff. And so we're trying to fill that gap in care. Yeah, and as a specialist that's receiving some of these patients, you know, one of the things that's always interesting is when a patient that had treatment uh, that was started, even if it wasn't one that I would agree with 100%, it's always, almost always better um, that, uh, okay, maybe it's not the antipsychotic I would have picked. Maybe it's not the mood stabilizer I would have picked. But the treatment was started, and that ends up being to the patient's benefit. And more often than not, we see the patients where no treatment was started. And as in your example uh, that you gave earlier, 
they have destabilized during that waiting period. And so now it takes more medication and a longer stay to, to stabilize them as well. You nailed it. I, that's, that's exactly it. Um, you know, it's, 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 I, I have yet, Neil, and maybe, maybe, you'll, uh, maybe this will change my next clinical shift, but I have yet to have a psychiatrist come up to me and yell at me for using the wrong antipsychotic on a patient in the ED or start a treatment protocol or something. I, they just, they, they're actually appreciative that we're, that we're involved, that we're, we're trying, right? And, and just like anybody else, um, with any other specialty, typically it's thanks for doing something. Doing nothing is the, is the worst possible thing you can do. Yeah, one of the motivating factors for many psychiatrists, certainly for, for me, is you know I want to treat the patients that no one else wanted to treat. And too often as a psychiatrist, I think many of us still feel uh, a little isolated and alone in terms of the specialty and the interaction. And so we love it when other providers uh, try, and we love being a part of the team. It's why we're physicians and not you know psychologists. And so we love being a part of the team, and uh, and we love it when people when when people help out and get and t- help us take care of uh, what ultimately is our patients. And and, yeah. and and we do appreciate it. So what are some examples of EPI success uh, that, that you've seen in the real world? You know, and each, each ED is a little bit different. I, I've realized that. I've worked with, you know, well over 50 uh, EDs in, over the last several years in trying to implement some of these things. And each one's a little bit different. Their opportunities are different, uh, you know, their strengths and weaknesses. So we try to go in and try to identify what their single biggest opportunity is, attack that, and then continue from there. But I will say... Uh, certainly length of stay is, is one of the big things that we try to address. And, uh, and we have seen some, some EDs significantly reduce their length of stay when it comes to behavioral health patients. And not just the discharge patients, the patients that are going home or going to an empath unit or an outpatient level of care. We've actually seen some hospitals, and I'm thinking of the, the Via Christi hospitals in, uh, in, in Kansas, Wichita, Kansas, they reduce their inpatient length of stay or their waiting time to get into the inpatient uh, unit. So their turnaround time to admission really significantly decreased. So that's one thing, certainly length of stay on discharge and, and admission times. We've also seen a, a great reduction in the utilization of restraints. And 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 we talked about you know starting treatment earlier and 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 the fact that you know oftentimes that's helpful. There is also there definitely is, is our circumstances when we're using the wrong treatment. And what I'm really referring to are patients that, you know, are, are given intramuscular medications without the attempt of giving oral medications without, you know, it's sort of a co- more coercive approach or let's just put them down and, and make sure they're not talking and just make them sleep, you know, and that's, that's really not the right approach. And so by helping emergency clinicians uh, learn how to de-escalate patients appropriately, form that therapeutic alliance, uh, and, and give the patients an opportunity to choose, uh, that really, really helps. So we're not putting patients in restraints. We're not getting staff injured. We're not getting patients injured. Actually, their length of stay goes down uh, as, as it relates to that as well. Another area is, is you know just, just over-processing in general. We can get into medical clearance in, in a little bit, but you know, the, the reliance on a lot of these tests and things like that and consultants, we don't necessarily always need. And, um, and so, so tremendous improvement uh, across the board. Um, we've, we've interviewed staff over and over after we, after we implement these strategies. And a lot of them say, you know, I, I think that I'm taking a better, better care of our patients. Uh, the patients seem to be calmer overall. Um, and I feel better about 
doing my job, I feel safer going to work. And that's yeah. huge. So we don't even talk about the wellness aspect of this, but I, I do when I'm when I'm introducing EPI, and that is, you know, Neil, there's nothing more frustrating than going into a shift and having a patient that you don't have the the tools, the knowledge, the skill set, or the support to take care of, right? And that burns you out. Yeah. Uh, but if you go in with it with with those skills or at least some basic knowledge on how to how to care for these patients and you can see uh, the fruits of your labor after you start inter- interacting with these patients differently, uh, that just makes you feel wonderful about your job. So EPI is all those things. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Now, are there any negatives, Seth, that you've noticed? Any reason we shouldn't do it? Any EDs that would not be a candidate for this? No, I, I honestly can't. Uh, you know, these principles uh, really are, are the right thing to do. Uh, it's, it's, I, have not, I have not run into an ED that says, boy, we shouldn't do these things. You know, I've run into some EDs where we'll go in and they say, no, nah, we kind of do all these things already. <laughs> so, there's, so there's those EDs. And, and yet we still find that there's an opportunity that potentially some of the leaders think that that's what's going on. But when they really do a deep dive into the data, they realize, oh, we have an opportunity to do better here. Um, some folks, I think, believe that if we're the ones dispositioning some of these patients low risk ourselves without getting, you know, psychiatric evaluation by a psychiatrist or another mental health worker, such as a social worker or something that we may, we may miss something, uh, or that maybe we'll have recidivism or bounce backs or something, things that increase. And we, we haven't seen that. Uh, first and foremost, we're not encouraging our clinicians to, to be, Psychiatrists, definitely not. So any patient that truly is a moderate or high-risk patient requires, and I highly recommend that you get somebody else to help evaluate that patient. Um, but if you're confident that they truly are low risk and there are some tools you can use to help help you come to that determination, uh, that we, we haven't seen those bounce backs. Uh, we haven't seen those, those bad outcomes. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of some hospitals in the Chicago uh, area that, that did this, and they measured that. They measured the bounce backs, and they didn't see any. So you've mentioned overprocessing a couple of times now. I know that's one of the three key features of EPI. Can you explain a little bit about what overprocessing is as we move into the details? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, this is uh, this is something that's really near and dear to my heart as a director of quality and performance, and it's not just related to behavioral health, but any patient that comes into the ED. And, and, and any patient, as you can imagine, that, that comes in presenting with a complaint or a problem, they have specific needs, you know, whether that's diagnostic or a therapeutic or, or even a disposition need. Uh, and it's our job to determine what that is when they come in. Uh, and and what, I, what I'm referring to in terms of overprocessing is, is as we start to understand, better understand what these patients need, we're giving this, these patients more than they need. We're overprocessing them. So we may be ordering more lab tests than need to be done. We may be ordering more treatment than needs to be done. We may be ordering more consultation than needs to be done. We may be admitting patients that may not need it. And that over-processing, um, giving too much to the patient, not just what they need, but too much, is, is very wasteful and very costly and very expensive. And I'm not just talking about a, a monetary you know, a, a value or number. Uh, we all know how impacted our EDs are right now, especially in this post-pandemic world. Uh, and having access to a bed and a nurse to help take care of that patient is really critical. So if we're overutilizing those things, we're overprocessing these patients, we're sending too many lab you know, diagnostics to the, to the lab upstairs, it's, it, it's going to slow the whole process down, the whole system down, right? 
And what we want to do is try to eliminate those unnecessary things, the things that the patient don't truly need. So give the patient exactly what they need, no more, no less, when they need it. And, um, and you'll really drive efficiency. But Seth, I need my patients to be medically perfect before I can actually take care of them. I, I, I need every lab value to be 100%. No, I mean, and I think some psychiatrists, I mean, on, on my side of the fence, like there are psychiatrists that really do seem to want that. And when you see some of the work that the EDs put in uh, before these patients come to us, I think the EDs deserve a little bit more respect from some psychiatrists that are trying to accept these patients. You said a statement in one of your trainings that I just really wanted to highlight, I believe it was you that said, the importance of a good HMP is so much more important than reliance on labs. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it's, and it's very true. I think what has, what has come of this sort of battle, and I hate to say that because I, we're, we're colleagues and we work together on this, but, but what it's set up over the past several decades is, is almost this battle of medical clearance where, you know, psychiatrists want a certain, you know, order set. They want, you know, diagnostic certainty when it comes to excluding medical conditions, uh, you know, that, that could explain the patient's presentation. And you got us on the other end saying, hey, no, I'm a good, clini- good clinician, right? I know what I'm doing. I can do a good HMP. And what happens, though, over time is as this battle uh, plays out, uh, I think it pushes us further and further apart. And so you end up with psychiatry wanting more tests because we're doing less on our side because we're saying we're just good clinicians and I'm not. And so as we sort of drive further and further and further apart, the patients get lost in the middle, unfortunately, and we have you know diagnostic errors. And so we end up over-relying, I think, on, on these tests, you know, these, these lab values or these imaging studies to tell us that the patient is medically stable and, and, and safe um, and yet, I think we're missing the foundation and the foundation of being a physician and being a good clinician is doing a good HMP. And it's amazing that when you sort of flip that upside down again and you say, I'm going to actually just do a good HMP, <laughs> I'm going to spend time talking to that patient, you'll catch 90 plus percent of any possible underlying medical conditions that would be causing that patient's presentation. And so it can't be understated. I mean, you have to start every patient encounter with a good solid HMP. And you'll find if you do that, you're not going to need as many tests as you think you would. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's important. I mean, on the psychiatric side, it's also important, you know, as as I train, um, you know, interns as they're moving through their training, you know, to get a good psych HMP, you know, patient will come in and say, Oh, I, I saw, um, three psychiatrists, I got seven diagnoses. And you're like, wait a second. And and too many of our patients are like that. And we have to start over and get a good history of when symptoms o- occurred, if we can, and really figure out what it is we're trying to treat. This might be a good place to talk about the tool you developed for clearance. Um, but I did want to also cover, uh, you know, for those listeners who uh, aren't psychiatrists, who maybe are in the ED, nurses in the ED, and they're wondering why has it gotten so hard from the psychiatry side. One of the, I think, things that we just have to collaborate on to, to, to make better is that once they get to a, a psychiatric unit, if, if they end up needing an inpatient bed, um, there's three basic kinds. There's the, there's the kind of what we used to call the ward, which is a floor in the same medical center. We're seeing less and less of those. Then sometimes you'll have a separate building, but it's part of the same parking lot or complex. And then we have true freestanding. And more and more of the units that were built in the last 20 years were like freestanding psychiatric units. And we do not have resources once they come there. We, we cannot get other specialists to come. Yes, we may or may not have 
a family medicine or internal medicine professional that will do a medical HMP. Um, but we don't have the ability to treat some of these uh, medical illnesses. And so it's not so much, I think most psychiatrists would say it's not so much about wanting perfect patients, although it can certainly come across that way when we don't communicate. It really is about, um, you know, ongoing medical illnesses that is going to cause them to then bounce right back because psychiatric nurses can't manage the kinds of things that are managed in the medical center. You you can't be you know changing uh, diapers on a patient that's incontinent and managing two code grays at the same time because our our patients do have uh, agitation more uh, more often than other places in the medical center. Um, and so you know I just use it as an example to say that's probably some of the factors that contributed to it getting this way, but we've got to do better. Uh, one of the things I'm, I'm working on is just the ability to see beyond my own specialty, the ability to look at the patient. And, and this is an area, you know, psychiatry in the ED, we can, we can look beyond our specialties and look at, uh, and look at what's going to be best for the patient. And, and if we, as providers or as nurses, they can talk to each other and say, what is the medical concern that you have about accepting this patient, then we could often probably dial it down and say, well, what I'm actually concerned about is, you know, that glucose of 350 um, and then, you know, going into DKA or something like that. And then we could probably address that one thing and then, uh, and then get them to the place they need. Absolutely. And it couldn't, it couldn't have said it better. We're really on the same page here. And uh, uh, you know, although it's, it's probably, probably not surprising for a lot of your audience members to hear though, that having those conversations, being able to have that kind of a conversation in real time is almost impossible, even, even when we ask for it. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of these solutions, solutions are local. And I, I truly believe that developing a relationship with your inpatient facilities or your empath units or your PEZ, you know, whatever you have, uh, it, it is going to do you more good uh, than you even know. Uh, so reach out, have conversations with the psychiatrist, develop some sort of a process where you can communicate regularly and potentially, potentially have that conversation. I know that's hard to do, though, and I know it's not always available. But, you, you know, you alluded to something, I think, which is interesting, too. And I, I love the way you said that. And that, and that really was trying to see beyond sort of the confines of your own specialty and under, better understand others. And that's, I would say, and I think I can speak on their behalf, the rest of the SMART team, um, would agree. And, and that's exactly what we went through when we developed the smart medical clearance tool was to recognize and, and really truly realize what our psychiatric colleagues, uh, you know, what their capabilities were in the inpatient facilities, what the patients had access to in terms of medical uh, conditions and treatment, ongoing treatment. And we, we didn't realize at the time what, uh, you know, what the limitations were. And so, Going through developing SMART really was an exercise in, in, in better understanding and appreciating, I think, those limitations, uh, which is why I think you, when you look through SMART, you'll realize like some people may say, well, why did you include these, some of these things in here? And, and I just tell them, it's about being a good neighbor. We, we didn't realize that some of these things were difficult for uh, inpatient facilities to, to, to get. Uh, and so we do need to do a better job. Uh, but at the same time, we don't need to overprocess every patient, right? And so there's good literature out there really that, that, that shines a light on, I think, some of the essentials that you need to do. Again, going back to that solid history and physical. But then there are some other things that we should do to help our partners and our colleagues in the psychiatric facilities uh, just make ensure that those patients really are stable. 
And I can tell you, again, being someone who has to receive some of these patients or evaluate them for receiving them in, into one of uh, the units that I work with, when I see a note from an ED doc that has some flow, like your smart tool, they do tend to get accepted more often and faster <laughs> because I can, I know that they didn't just glance at the patient and assume everything was the same. They actually stated, here are the reasons we did the workup that we did. And, um, and this is why we stopped at this point and said they're medically and medically clear. Now, smart's just not an adjective for the people that are in the ED, but you actually have some, <laughs> some questions that go with that. Walk us through that really quickly. Like you said, you're attesting to it in your chart that you did this. Uh, there's also an element of accountability there, Neil, where you know, if I attest to the fact that I applied all of these criteria to this patient and I give you good rationale, then you know, my name's on the hook that I've done a good job here. So, so SMART, yeah, SMART is, is, um, is, is essentially there are five main sections to it. Um, and it, is, it is an acronym, but there's a lot more to it. So, so the S is suspect new onset uh, psychiatric conditions. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, any patient that we believe has a new onset psychiatric condition, uh, we need to we need to approach that patient more cautiously and kind of consider, uh, you know, this this patient more carefully. This patient probably needs a medical evaluation a little bit more thorough than we ordinarily would. I think most probably would agree that you probably need to do some basic labs on this patient, potentially imaging if if the, the presentation may be consistent with some so intracranial problem and things like that. Uh, medical conditions M is for medical conditions that require screening, and we we added on here diabetes because it's so so common in a lot of our patients. Possibility of pregnancy because uh, we've been told you know by some of the psychiatrists that it does depend. You know the pregnancy status certainly will change therapeutic approaches in the inpatient settings, so it would be nice to know. Uh, other complaints that require screening. This is perhaps one of the most important. Uh, elements in the M section, the medical conditions part. And, and what we wanted to, uh, why we wanted to include that in there was, you know, a patient say is coming and saying, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm considering harming myself. I've had these thoughts of depressed and all that, but I'm also having belly pain. And that's not ever, that's not right. You know, those two things go, go hand in hand, or I'm having chest pain, or I'm having, you know, this numbing or numbness or whatever, fevers. So we really do need to consider those those other complaints that the patient has. We don't, we don't want to uh, you know, push them by the wayside, ignore them, and just say this is a psychiatric patient, but rather what other complaints may they have or, or are they presenting with that we do need to do a medical evaluation for. So that's why that's there. A is, is for abnormal, uh, and I, and I kind of like this in, in that it's, it, it addresses vital signs, mental status, and physical exam. And the vital signs uh, are, you know, looking for patients that have fevers, patients that are tachycardic or bradycardic, uh, patients that, um, for the most part, are, you know, not hypotensive and they're not significantly hypertensive. And, and you'll notice that, you know, the, the blood pressure in there on the higher end, the, the hypertensive numbers that we came up with, the 180 over 110 is actually evidence-based, goes back to, uh, uh, to the... Um, emergency medicine literature, really where there are some consensus statements out there saying that in general, there really is no evidence to do any sort of a workup if a patient, you know, doesn't have a blood pressure, uh, you know, greater than 180 over 110 because the likelihood of end organ dysfunction is extremely low, not fruitful at all and just wasteful. Uh, respiratory rates, of course, looking for, uh, you know, Britipnic patients or anybody that's tachypnic 
And then, of course, uh, hypoxia is, is never normal. Uh, mental status, and this is an area uh, I think that, that's debatable, certainly. Uh, you know, we put the bare minimum, sort of the minimum, sort of the, the lowest common denominator there, which is making sure this patient can communicate appropriately, that they're alert and oriented to at least person, place, time, potentially, you know, event. And, and I kind of want to know all of that. Is, 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 is this patient making sense? Um, now, others have said, you know, maybe we need to do a little bit more there. Maybe we, we really are screening for delirium. Uh, and there are some other tools there. You know, I'm not a big fan of the mini mental status exam. I think it's pretty laborious and kind of long. But uh, there are other things like the, the BCAM uh, that I think a, a lot of us, um, you know, are, are more familiar with using and is probably a really good ED screen to look for delirium. Um, and then patients that are intoxicated, uh, you know, uh, that, that's included in mental status because for the most part, I think a lot of us know when patients um, are under the influence, particularly of of alcohol, they have a known history, they were found with bottles, they, they admitted to drinking or a family member called and said that they were, you know, under the influence. And and, and that in and of itself does not mean that the patient's not like, medically cleared, um, but I do want to be sure that I have a reliable history and physical. And with somebody that's, you know, truly under the influence uh, and, and significantly, you know, inebriated uh, or impaired, I should say, is really the right word. I don't think I can get a good, reliable history and physical out of that patient. So we want to make sure uh, that that we're using the high score, which is the Hack Impairment Index, which is just a phenomenal tool. And I want to do a shout out to Jason uh, Jason Hack, who uh, is uh, the developer of the Hack Hacks Impairment Index, and it's it's fantastic. It's essentially a sobriety tool for the ED, where you can you can really assess their level um, of impairment in the ED, and it's really really valuable for us with Smart saying that okay, I think that at this point, assuming their score is full, uh, uh, less than four, we can we can say that this patient can give a reliable history and physical. R is for risky presentations. So any of these patients that you know are age extremes, uh, possibility of ingestion, or these patients that you know may have taken something, we need to be screening those patients for sure. We don't want to ever miss you know, that Tylenol overdose. Eating disorders are high risk, uh, as we know, because patients that, you know, can have significant, um, you know, lab abnormalities with respect to their electrolytes and things like that. Um, potential for alcohol withdrawal, we want to screen them for their use. And, you know, if we think that they uh, have a history of withdrawal or have significant use um, over the last couple of weeks, then we really need to, to be on alert for that and start treatment right away. Um, and then anybody that was ill-appearing, just doesn't look right, found down, there's trauma, something like that, we need to work those patients up as well. And then the last section is uh, is T, therapeutic uh, levels needed. And, and this is really about being a good neighbor and about doing the right thing. Because like, as you mentioned, uh, we, we may miss uh, that patients were, are, are supposed to be taking some of these, these high-risk medications. And um, and you don't have the, the ability to get labs quickly uh, and sometimes ever, you know, in an inpatient facility. Uh, but we do. And if any of these patients, you know, are on these medications that are considered high risk or could potentially interact with something else that you may be starting them on, it's it's great to get a level just so that we know. So we added, you know, uh, dilantin, phenytoin, valproic acid, lithium, uh, digoxin, and warfarin as sort of these major high risk medications that we should be screening. This is about being a good neighbor. This is about helping our colleagues in the inpatient facilities, you know, uh, assess those patients appropriately. So I think as an overall, um, just to kind of summarize the, the form itself, if you if you can say no to all of these categories, you do that thorough history and physical exam, you review all of these, and you say no to all of these, you attest to that fact, and that patient does not require any testing at all, and they would be medically cleared. If any of these sections or any of these individual elements you say yes, and they screen in positive, then you need to do something. And that's something is up to you as a clinician. You know, we're not, you know, going to say that, that 
that uh, you don't have the appropriate training and knowledge to do that, and you don't just need to order a test. You may order a test to clear that patient, or you just have to give really good rationale. For instance, if their heart rate's elevated, you know, and they're 112 or something like that on, on their uh, heart rate, is it just that they're really anxious, you know, or, or a little bit agitated? Maybe you just need to reassess and, and things like that, or maybe not. Maybe they're febrile and tachycardic, and you need to screen for sepsis. So um, that's really what that means. And then once they're all all know or you've addressed all those yeses, then they're medically cleared and, and you're done with your evaluation. Well, that's great. Um, and one of the areas of collaboration on the levels too is is some of the medications. Uh, it's important if we're going to get a level to perhaps get it as soon as they come in, because uh, if they miss a few doses or whatever, it may change it. So it is nice to, if you had concern for lithium toxicity, that the level was gotten, but I've also had some minimal luck in collaborating and saying, Hey, you know, this patient came in on clozapine. We're not sure what's going on. And the ED or doc or staff are saying, well, you guys go ahead and take this patient. If every, if everything comes back negative, I say yes. But since you're ordering labs, can you go ahead and throw a clozapine level? Because that's going to take several days to come back. And assuming I have access to those uh, those same lab results from that ED, uh, that can be super helpful at changing a dose and helping you know the ED helping the uh, the treatment of that patient um, several days later, which which is really is really nice. Um, and also, Seth, of course, I just love it. I I, I think you're you're not selling me on the 82-year-old with no psych history that develops schizophrenia overnight? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Talk about red flags, man. The red flags are going off in my head. Yeah. So that's that's absolutely true. All Everything you just said. And that's why, you know, I, I think that the realization that if we don't get some of those levels that just help help you out and, and again, be a good, good neighbor and good partner, that we're actually impacting your throughput and, and, and or also creating a risky situation for that patient. So we need to think about that. It's not just about physically getting that patient out of the department quickly. It's about helping you get those patients out of your hospital, you know, safely and efficiently as well. And so what we can do for you is I think it goes a long way. That being said, most of these patients don't necessarily require that. And, and, and usually anywhere from about 40 to 60 percent of patients that present to an ED setting uh, will pass with all no. And that's variable. That's variable. Uh, you'll have higher risk populations and lower risk populations and things like that. But it's variable. About 40 to 60% will not require any testing at all. Um, and then the others will. And assuming we're doing a really good history and physical and applying all of these elements correctly, um, it is very safe. We've, we've um, seen uh, it's some data that UC Davis and some of ours at Mercy San Juan Medical Center, two of the sites where we piloted this, uh, that it is very safe. There really are no bounce backs for, for medical reasons, admissions, things like that. Um, you know, and, uh, and so it's it's very safe tool to use. Yeah, and I don't know if I told you this, Seth, before, but uh, when I was a chief resident, we you know, we took this tool and it is just a tool. You have to change it for each context. And so at a VA hospital, for instance, we added two things to it in collaboration with the ED. And they were willing to do those two extra things because if those two things were done, and, and then we were able to take those psychiatric patients um, more quickly and more frequently. And it, it was, uh, you know, in the veteran population, uh, if they attested to uh, drinking and if they looked inebriated, we did ask for a BAL on those. And then we also asked for a sugar because we had so many problems uh, with uh, patients bouncing over to medicine for, um, you know, uh, needing fluids or, or problems with uh, diabetes. Yeah. So uh, we just added those two things and, and that collaboration worked really well. 
That's great. And that's great to know. And I think what you'll find uh, as you start searching for smart um, you know, applications uh, across the country, you'll find that it's popped up everywhere. You know, I mean, there are several states that have adopted it statewide at this point. We're very proud of, of, that, of that fact. Um, but, you know, the original smart team, and I want to shout out, give a shout out to all of these folks, you know, Amy Moulin, uh, Kevin Jones, Amy Barnhorst, Eileen Wetzel, um, you know, I think that they really helped kind of um, make sure that that we weren't being too prescriptive in this, you know, and, and when I kind of brought this tool to them and said, let's tweak it and make it make it something that we can all use, they said, let's not be too prescriptive. We don't want to do that. We want to allow our, our partners across the country to adapt it. And I think that they, your point that the smart plus or the smart Michigan or the smart Tennessee or whatever you come up with, that's fine. Um, we're, we're okay with that. Um, take it use it and then adapt it to your local environment. And that's probably the best, best way to use it. Okay. So we, we've been talking about the clearance and reducing, eliminating the over-processing. Um, but when it's, once we're done with that first step of EPI, what comes next? But after that, I think that the most important part is really trying to understand uh, you know, the level of, of risk that this patient presents to, to themselves or others and I think for, for most of us, and you look at state involuntary laws, you know, patients have to be a danger to self, others are gravely disabled to hold them involuntarily. But it doesn't just stop at that. I think we need to really better understand it. Not just ask those simple questions, but really understand more about the patient. You know, what, what really brought you into the ED? What's causing this crisis? What are your triggers? You know, um, what's your, what's your you know, mental health history? You know, are you supposed to be taking medications? Are you not taking them? Is there substance use um, going on? Um, you know, things like that. Um, you know, what are your protective factors? And really getting into that and trying to better understand a risk stratification level. Again, we're not psychiatrists. We're not trained, you know, to, to do all those things that you guys do. Um, but I think that once we start to understand a little bit more about the circumstances that surround the patient's presentation, we'll do a better job. And, and a lot of this does come down to, to clinical gestalt. And so what we ask our clinicians to do is, is give your clinical discharge. We're very good at that in the ED of you know low, moderate, high risk. And so what I recommend is is give is assign an initial level. Is this a low low risk patient? And if so, let's confirm it. Let's document it appropriately and try to get those patients those resources so they can get home. So skimming off the lower risk patients, I think, is really important. Not sending them down that pathway where every single one of them is going to get labbed up put in a room, have their belongings taken away, and then wait several hours for a clinician, to, another clinician to go see them and tell you, hey, they could have just gone home. <laughs> you know, like those things are real. So that's one thing. I think skimming those patients off. Secondarily, anybody else, I think starting treatment right away. And, and my recommendation is that if they have not been taking those medications, they should be for whatever reason. If you can get them restarted on them within an hour of arrival, you're going to do your, yourself and the patient and your whole department a, a great, a, a huge good. Um, you are really going to be changing the trajectory of that patient's care significantly. You're going to prevent them from from escalating, being placed in restraints, things like that. Um, and then I think it's really about you know discharge planning, of course, for those patients that you think are going to be able to go home and putting into place a process whereby they're reassessed. And reassessment is a real key there too, because what I find when I go into most emergency departments is if you don't have that mental health clinician there, not everybody's lucky enough to have a psychiatrist or, or a social worker or somebody helping you with this patient. Unfortunately, these folks don't get seen um, or, or even talked to, um, but maybe for every shift. So every shift turns over and somebody comes in and does another assessment. And depending upon what we think is going on with the patient, um, we probably should 
be assessing them much more often, anywhere from every four hours to every six or every eight hours. But we certainly should not be waiting 12 or 24 hours to do a reassessment on these patients because we're going to miss opportunities where they're starting to wake up a little bit more or they're more conversant or the crisis has gone away. They're in a safer environment. And we could certainly identify patients that, uh, you know, could, could alternatively go into a lower, um, you know, lower acuity setting, may potentially even home. So we need to start doing those things. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we hear the patients once once we receive them is, you know, the difference uh, between the patients of s- someone said, oh, I, I, I was stuck there for two days and they did nothing versus someone who said, oh, yeah, they already gave me my medications. I, you know, I'll probably be ready to go home tomorrow. And it really can make a huge difference, um, you know, because so many of them, uh, you know, can if they, you know, we, we don't, you know, no one wants patients going to the emergency uh, room for a refill of of just basic medications, but if they're already there, um, you know you take care of them and going uh, two hours and then restarting their meds versus going, you know, twenty six hours and restarting their meds could be a huge difference. I mean, that environment often is not a calm, right. <laughs> inducing environment. You've got traumas rolling in. You've got helicopters coming and going. You've got stroke codes going off. And, uh, you know, thankfully, I don't have all of that at, at my local psych hospital. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It is. You're right. It's not an ideal environment for these patients to be in. So uh, hence the reason we want to minimize that. If you have the opportunity to move a patient to a quieter area, and I know that that's probably laughable for a lot of us, I understand. I, I, I work in a, in a cramped emergency department. We don't have space. But if you can, if there's something you could do to change that environment, it's going to make it better for that patient. Uh, you know, there are some places that are fortunate enough to run almost like these internal empath units in their EDs. I think that's a great concept, assuming you have the, you can afford the real estate, you have the staff to do it. Um, but I, I want to, I want to concentrate. Yeah. The, the, the risk stratification matrix, um, is something that I think that that's built into EPI. And what that really is, is it's just a framework for us to understand, um, where these patients are in terms of level of risk, depending upon their presenting, you know, signs and symptoms. And I think that really helps drive those downstream pathways, right? And, and so we talked a little bit about low risk. When we identify a patient low risk that they should go, moderate risk, um, you know, we really, uh, this, these are patients that probably need treatment and then reassessment in a defined amount of time. But then these high-risk patients, we don't often spend enough time talking about them. But I think this is where, yes, treatment, early treatment, but also early disposition planning and working on you know, expedited transfer protocols, if, if that's something you can do with your local inpatient facilities, say this patient absolutely, without question, really be- would benefit from an inpatient stay. You know, this is a patient that was found hanging. This is a patient that, you know, intentionally over. This is a patient that has a long, long history of these things. And we really need to get these patients over there. So I think if we can work proactively and apply the principles in the risk stratification matrix um, to, uh, you know, what we have in terms of resources, including our inpatient facilities and our partners, uh, that we can really do a lot of good. Now, in the literature, one of the phrases is the split flow processing. For those of us on the psychiatric side, we probably haven't encountered that as much. What does that mean and how does it relate to this? What we're really doing is rather than sending these patients that may be low, moderate, and high risk all down the same pathway, what we're saying is once you determine a patient is low risk or you feel like they are or they're moderate or high risk, then have separate pathways for them and split them. You know, so these patients that are low risk don't need to be placed in those private rooms 
you know, they don't need to be take, have their, all their belongings taken away. They don't need to see a psychiatrist necessarily in the ED setting. Uh, and the same goes with, you know, the high-risk patients. They, they need to be um, diverted or split off from the rest of the cohort. And they need to get you know, exp- expedited um, you know, uh, admission to an inpatient facility. So it's really about splitting these patients up, splitting the flow of patients based on risk level. Again, giving the patients exactly what they need when they need it. And if you have, uh, if you're lucky enough to have a social worker or someone else that's working on disposition in your um, your emergency department, please look at the community's uh, behavioral health department, mental health department, and see if they have lower acuity places for the lower risk flow, because it may be that they can go to a voluntary program instead of to an involuntary or locked uh, psychiatric unit. And so you can leverage that split flow processing once you've implemented it. If your community or the near, you know, nearby in another community, they have these access to resources. So we do have patients that are lower risk being diverted after medical clearance to um, to a voluntary program. Uh, some of them are t- another twenty four hours. Some of them um, can be two weeks. Uh, we we have a we're lucky enough to have a few in our community that can go up to ninety days uh, of yeah. treatment. That's not a hospital, and it's it's very helpful for um, some of the lower risk patients. Yeah, I want to emphasize that. And that's really important, Neil. Uh, when an ED applies EPI principles and they're trying to implement this, please, please, please don't just focus on your ED clinicians. I think that you really have to get everybody to the table. And that is you know, your social workers, your nurses, your psychiatrists, everybody needs to be there to work on this because you will realize, as you said, that there are alternate dispositions for these patients that we had never considered. And we can't do it ourselves. We have to work with, with the resources that we have. And you will be so impressed when you're sitting across the table, um, you know, uh, next to or next to a psychiatrist or social worker, and all of a sudden they go, oh, yeah, well, we do have these, these alternate dispositions, these other places we can send patients. Well, let's develop a pathway. You know, let's put something together. And it's phenomenal. And so I really encourage you guys to do that. Be multidisciplinary be collaborative. Absolutely. Particularly with, uh, you know, comorbid substance use or even primary substance use related conditions. Um, often they may be a little bit more stable. They're just coming in. They're wanting to get connected to resources right away. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, they're saying certain things or presenting a certain way in order to obtain those resources more quickly, doing the best that they can do. Um, but, but the reality is there, you know, if it, if it's, um, uh, primary substance, perhaps that uh, that they could be sent somewhere other than an inpatient psych unit, where there may not even be good coverage or treatment uh, for that particular disorder, anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Precise. Yeah. Precisely. Now, sometimes um, you know the level of agitation. I think is something that's brought up that people who haven't. Uh, done this, or they've thought about doing it, or they don't do it very often. They're scared. They're scared of the agitation of the of the psychiatric patient, or even the non psychiatric patient. They're scared of agitation. Um, anything you want to say about that? Yeah, and for good reason. Uh, and, and we know we we all have these these stories that we can tell. We all we all have had experiences of of patients that can you know be be violent in in the ED setting and and have hurt staff. We want to be sensitive to that. No question about that. Uh, you know, but what we want to do with EPI is not just call an agitated patient an agitated patient and treat them all the same again. It's really better understanding levels of agitation and how to approach each situation uh, so that you can, again, deliver the exact kind of care that that patient needs at the right time. 
So we do recommend something called the Behavioral Activity Rating Scale, which is just a really, really easy way to, it's again, low, moderate, high <laughs> level of agitation, uh, to, to pick up on patient's agitation earlier. So it's not just about saying, okay, this patient is moderately agitated, let's give this medication or this medical, this, this, this specific type of intervention to this patient to try to calm them down, but it's also about really teaching the staff and our clinicians to pick up on agitation a little bit earlier so that we can avert a disaster, avert that patient that is going to decompensate and then get super violent and hurt somebody, right? So if we can intervene earlier um, with both really good de-escalation skills uh, and medication, coupling that with medications, uh, you can you can create a really calm, much more calm ED, much safer. Uh, so it's, it's really helpful. So we recommend sort of coupling that BARS behavioral activity rating scale with specific medication interventions and de-escalation, and it really can transform your ED. So as we continue to process people, get um, psychiatric treatment started, what's the next phase? Yeah, so after, after starting the treatment, like I said, is, is coming up with a, a reassessment plan for, this, for these patients. And again, trying to avoid that every shift uh, mentality where we're not seeing patients, but for every shift, we're not doing an assessment of, you know, their, their level of dangerous self, others gravely disabled. We're not talking to them about their symptoms. Um, so coming up with that kind of a model and, and you may not know exactly why they're there in terms of what, what were the triggers that brought them in to crisis in your ED, but there are models that you can come up with. And in, in our EPI toolkit, we do have recommended intervals for reassessment, depending upon whether this was, you know, decompensation of a primary psychiatric disorder because they were, just weren't taking their medications or something stressful happened, their boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with them, that sort of thing. Um, or if potentially there were substances involved, because we know uh, that these substances metabolize at, at, a, at a fairly well-known rate, and it's, it's available in literature. So patients that are, you know, uh, that are impaired by alcohol or cocaine or methamphetamines, things like that, we, we know that they're a relatively predictable uh, rate, uh, you know, of, uh, of metabolizing them. So go back and reassess these patients, you know, four to eight hours, maybe for somebody that has that is impaired by alcohol, four to six hours for, for cocaine. Methamphetamine is, is certainly longer acting, so eight to 12 hours there. But again, not forgetting that that we should be treating these patients as well. There, there are treatment for, for several of these starting medications and things like that. So I think that that's the most important thing. And then as you start to kind of go through these, these reassessment phases is coming up with those, those disposition decisions and coming up with a plan. And those will change, by the way. We, we all know that, and I know you, you know that as psychiatrists, is that you, you, your initial prediction on whether this patient's going to be an inpatient or an outpatient will end up changing, and they will surprise you sometimes. And so I always recommend that, that EDs even put together uh, you know, rounds where, where we do behavioral health rounds at, at least once a day, at the minimum, where we run the whole list of patients and we say, okay, what's their current status? If they're still here the next day, why? And, and ask yourself, yeah, are, are they having behavioral issues? Are there medical issues going on? Have we started their medications? We talked to family. And then the big, the big question is, why are they still here? And is there, is there an alternate uh, disposition for them? You know, can we consider, and, I, and, and almost every round that we do, there's almost always one patient where we go, hmm, maybe there's something else we could do with them. Let's reassess and go back and see if we can if we divert this patient elsewhere. Yeah, and, and it can go both ways. I think alcohol services is a good example here. The risk could go up on the reassessment too. But there's nothing more frustrating than um, 
than to, you know, have a patient be admitted to a psych bed. They get there, we do uh, the full psych assessment and get ready to, and, and then it's been, you know, 12 hours and they say, you know, sorry, I just drank too much. We call the family and they say, yeah, they're never going to hurt themselves. And, you know, now we've taken up a, a, a bed for, a, you know, a whole day, sometimes longer. And, and, and that's frustrating. Equally too dangerous if, if you jump to a conclusion, say it's just the alcohol and uh, as it turns out, as they're getting sober, that family comes by and goes, oh, here's the suicide note they wrote. Um, and you, you can easily miss that thinking, oh, just the alcohol uh, without that reassessment as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good, really good point. Okay, so um, we, we've reduced uh, the overprocessing. We put them in a split flow matrix and assess their risk, and uh, and ultimately we started uh, appropriate uh, medication management. What are the challenges that you've seen in in implementing this overall program? What what are the things that people say? Oh, maybe this will work in our context. What do they need to think about? One of the biggest challenges we've seen is is getting everybody on the same page and um, a collaborative approach. So getting the, the key stakeholders to the table can sometimes be a, a bit of a challenge. Um, so uh, again, I, I not, that, not to say that you can't do anything if you don't have support from your psychiatrists, your nurses, your social workers, uh, and all of that. You can, but I think it's going to be pretty, pretty limited uh, in what you can do. But So I highly recommend getting everybody on the same page, sort of uh, making sure that, that everybody realizes that, that, that we have an opportunity to do better. And once we get everybody engaged around the table, I think some amazing things happen. But that's been, that's been a particular challenge. Staffing challenges sometimes, especially these days, has, has been really difficult. And uh, making sure that, that there's enough dedicated time that these staff can actually receive the training uh, has been a challenge as well. But undoubtedly, if you do have the staff, you have the time to dedicate to this, uh, undoubtedly, you will see a change in your department department's performance. Well, we're coming close to time, but I want to run some quick cases and let's just see. And we might even disagree on this. All right. 25-year-old male, two previous psych hospitalizations. Um, he presents with command auditory hallucinations to kill himself. He's pacing around the unit. Um, he is also endorsing severe headache uh, and he's scratching his arms. What medical workup might this uh, gentleman need? Yeah, so I do like uh, you know the fact that we 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 know that this patient has a psychiatric history, so that one is that's certainly helpful to me. Has had the, the psych admissions and everything. Um, my I have a couple of concerns with this patient. I think one is you know he is a twenty five year old male, so that's that's good. I mean the likelihood of you know primary underlying uh, medical you know medical presentation is uh, is pretty low. Uh, you don't know. I mean this patient probably he could certainly be um, under the influence of of you know drugs or alcohol or something like that. I think it really depends on what kind of a history I can get. And that's the big thing that's making me nervous here is, am I going to be able to sit down and talk to this patient, you know, eye to eye and have a reliable conversation? If I am, then I don't think he would need too much at all. I mean, if he's scratching, yes. I mean, does he have a rash or something like that? Is this a headache that's new and out of the ordinary that we need to consider working up? Because that would go into other medical conditions. You know, maybe a UDS if, if we feel like, you know, he might need something, he might not. But if he openly admits to it, you know, I was drinking and I used meth last night. I'm not sure how that's going to be super helpful. But, 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 but in general, I think it could be a safe clearance. But I really would want to know if I could talk to this individual and have a good history and physical exam on him. Fantastic. And on the psych side, I could say, um, 
We've probably seen him twice before. Let's make sure he doesn't have scabies or get something on that if he does. Let's get the urine. We're, uh, psychiatrists in emergency will probably never agree on the UDS because we need it for diagnosis. Um, it really does help. They won't pee once they get to us. And yeah, and yet, and yet, I wouldn't throw a big uh, a big fit. Like I don't think he needs a new CT head if he's had the two previous psych admissions. Yeah. And so, right. um, and so, I, I would think he would be a, a, a quick process, and we could get things uh, going for that person. I think so too. All right, what about a 52-year-old male, recently divorced? He says he's a retired Air Force pararescue jumper. He's brought in by his brother. Yeah. Patient is saying um, he doesn't know why he's there, and he doesn't know why his brother wants him to talk to anybody, and he doesn't have any problems. Really? So this is this is concerning. Um, you know, he's 52, so again, kind of within that 55 or less range, so that's that's helpful. He probably, probably is a healthy guy, so that's good. I would definitely want to do... Uh, have a good conversation with him, history of physical review, his medical history. Uh, but assuming his vitals are normal and everything like that, I think that that's great. But, but my concern is he's not communicating. He doesn't really want to talk to anybody about why he's here. So that worries me a little bit. Um, you know, I, what, I is, this, is he actually suicidal? Did he ingest something? I might perform some screening diagnostics on him for Tylenol level, things like that. Um, we don't know if he has a substance use history and things of that nature. Um, you know, I think your point here is, you know, retired Air Force. Does he have access to, to deadly means at home and things like that? So he's going to need more of a workup. This guy, would, I would say he's probably a moderate risk individual. I don't know that his medical workup has to be pretty exten- extensive here at all. But, but certainly on the psychiatric side, we definitely need to get better history. We're not, we're not getting enough here to know if this guy's danger or not. Yeah, I mean, and this is a, a, you know, would be a classic for most psychiatrists. This would send up all kinds of red flags that uh, they, they're going to want to watch this, uh, you know, this gentleman for um, a couple days and talk to multiple family members before they're comfortable letting him go. Someone probably yeah. has guns at home, um, a, you know, former special forces operator. Um, they're not going to tell anybody before they, before they hurt themselves and they don't need Good practice. Point. They'll do it. They'll do it right the first time. Yeah. Getting that collateral is going to be important here. I, I agree. 72-year-old female with a history of only depression, moderate depression, anxiety early in their life, is now having a delusion that she's never had before. Brought in by daughter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, uh, you, you don't, don't, you know, don't stop. Don't collect. Or don't pass. Don't pass go. Don't collect 200. I mean, you, you have to work this patient up. You know, she's 72 years old, only has a history of depression. You know, she's, she's not acting normal at all. She's having delusions. That's strange. And so, my approach to this one would be this patient would not be an easy, uh, smart pass at all. Uh, and this patient is uh, potentially has an under, underlying medical condition. This could be delirium. Until proven otherwise, it would be delirium to me. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, thank you so much, uh, Seth Thomas, for starting this. I do want to say as a psychiatrist, too, if you are a nurse, a provider, a therapist in the, uh, working in the emergency context, uh, you know, look at your resources to see if you want to carry some of this further. Um, learning some motivational interviewing techniques to help with substance use and medication um, adherence. Um, uh, there's a, even a, a program out of uh, Harvard called Good Psychiatric Management for Borderline Personality Disorder for those patients presenting in, a, in an emotional crisis uh, where you can learn the skills to talk to these patients in a, such a way that they may be, uh, it may lower their risk and it may get them treatment earlier. And uh, any final comments, uh, Seth? Thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Hey, thanks. Thanks, Neil. I really can't thank you enough for this. And I just want to, you know, give a big, big shout out to our emergency medicine and psychiatry colleagues. I have such respect for, for everything you guys all do for, for our patients every day. Thank you for your commitment, your level of commitment. I would just leave you with, hey, consider EPI. There are things we can do to make our EDs better. Uh, to provide better care, more efficient and timely care for our patients. Uh, and please reach across the aisle, talk to your colleagues on the other side. Uh, we are all here for the same reason and for the right reasons. And so when we collaborate and we work on implementing things like these, uh, you know, there are, there are, we will be able to move every single mountain. You know, there's, there's nothing we can't do together. That concludes this episode of MSYC. The information shared within this episode was peer reviewed. And for more information, check the show notes. If you have additional questions, feedback, or to get in touch, please email us at empsych at vituity.com.